Good morning, digital wildcatters. Welcome to the BDE show. And if I do toot my own horn, although that didn't sound so great, did it? <laughs> Never mind. If I pat myself it's on the back. Room. Yes, exactly. If I pat myself on the back, in the greatest trade since 1626, when Dutch trader Peter Minuet from the Canaries Indians bought Manhattan for $24 worth of beads and trinkets. I've topped that. I've traded Frack Slap in this week, Colin McClellan, taking him to the sidelines and brought in my guest host today, Mark Myers. Mark, welcome in. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, I guess I was hoping for a Larry Anderson for Jeff Bagwell. There we analogy, go. You're a baseball guy. You're I'll, a baseball I'll take, guy. I'll take the guy who bought Manhattan. There you go. And I, I like have that. a little Dutch background, so... You know what? Larry Anderson actually did what he was supposed to in sure. that trade. I mean, it wound up being the greatest trade in Astros history or potentially any major league baseball history. But Anderson did what he was supposed to do down the stretch. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's get into it. All right, Mark, I'm unemployed. I have a modest portfolio that I am living with. And yesterday morning, sitting around B, the digital wildcatters office, I shat myself. The NASDAQ was down almost 5%. The Dow was down over 1,100 points. Crude was down almost 4%. To quote Bill Murray, mass hysteria, dogs and cats sleeping together. But by the end of the day, all was right with the world. The NASDAQ actually eked out a small gain. The Dow eked out a small gain. Crude bounced back, so it closed down just a buck. And to quote the recently departed uh, singer Meatloaf, God rest his soul, two out of three ain't bad. Mark, I've never been a public guy. I've always been a private guy. Tell me what all this means. Well, first of all, as a public guy, you, you, you learned what the tractor beam syndrome, as I call it, is like you can spend an entire day trying to steer stocks your way. Um, and it really doesn't work. It's, it's like body English and bowling or golf. Um, you know, at the risk of not taking the risk of departing from it's never different, uh, credit to Dan Pickering, um, was tweeting yesterday about uh, some pretty interesting history about 20 years ago in front of the dot-com bust and uh, the signal of an entry into a bear market, 13 of the largest intraday gyrations happened around that time. Yeah, so the the, the crash happening um, and these big intraday rallies are not bullish. You know, I saw that tweet a few times uh, yesterday that they're actually bearish signals, so... There, there's a lot more complexity. Uh, there's a lot more information. There's a lot more um, speed, um, blind spots, both fundamental and a lot of externalities, you know, Ukraine and what's going on there certainly uh, is impacting on, I believe, risk tolerance. We've seen a real blowout or in uh, tech stocks and somewhat reminiscent of the uh, 2000 rotation 2001 rotation from tech into energy but it's a lot more complicated today and i think um the 
the the magnitude of the intraday rally like we saw yesterday. Of course, the XOP opened up down three percent today, and I noticed right before we walked in here, it was clawing back to even. Don't know where it is now. Um, that doesn't, to me, uh, as a fundamental guy, signify you know kind of a green light. Yeah. No, I haven't looked yet this morning because yesterday's uh, mess was enough. But while we're kind of in public world, it's earnings seasons. We're starting to see releases out there. We've heard some stuff from the big oil field service guys. What are we hearing there? Well, uh, at the risk of stating the obvious, the quarter was good. Uh, a lot of tailwinds there in terms of uh, top line. I uh, paid particular attention to Baker's report. Um so I think that the key is heading into what we're going to start hearing from the big upstream players, the big E&P companies is what does the outlook uh, look like in terms of spending? We all know there's inflation in the chain. And if you look and take uh, fresh bread activity, as a, for instance, uh, I was reading in the TPH note uh, last week that, you know, we had a 4% month-to-month increase in January in terms of the number of spreads, approximately 225 in a, in a nominal capacity of 300. Uh, thoughts are that uh, at least based on their synthesis of, of looking at the information and talking to, to service providers, you know, maybe pricing starts to come back uh, with some traction at around the 250 level. So we're not that far. You know, the question is how much is going to be viable in terms of equipment that's ready to go in the stack, how much is going to be in need of a lot of, as they called it, tender loving care. And so there's going to be a lot of friction in the system. I think the question the EMPs are going to have to answer is how they're going to maneuver around inflation. And so one data point I saw on, on Diamondback was uh, citing um, pre-purchased materials and also harvesting some ongoing efficiencies that would then allow them, uh, one projection is, think about 2022 CapEx is really run right in Q4. So I, I, think, I think we're going to see a lot in terms of uh, the tolerance for raising spending, because if you're not, if you're not spending to keep up with inflation, you're, you're losing ground. Yeah. Now, it's never made any sense to me why... When times are great, the oil field service guys just beat up the EMP guys. And then when times are bad, the EMP guys beat up the oil field service guys. You would figure, given how much the whole rest of the world hates us these days, can't we all get in the boat and get along? But I guess we won't see that yet. Yeah, I, I used, for a brief moment in my career, worked in a, a strategic sourcing with a consultancy. And um, we were in the phase in the mid-late 90s of moving from the low bid RFP to strategic alliances and one contractor we brought in and we asked in the interview, what's your, what's your idea of, of an alliance with a customer? And they said, well, it's a six month firm on price. <laughs> I'll never forget that. And perfect. it was, it was with a Cajun accent. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. We got goings on in uh, private equity. Let's go there. Chuck, love it when I get to be 
in the private equity room. <laughs> Announcement out just yesterday. I, I liked it too. It was kind of <laughs> nice back then. Never knew how good I had it. Um, Quantum announced yesterday that its president, Diraj Verma, is stepping down to become a senior advisor, which gives him a chance to reevaluate priorities and uh, spend more time with family. Uh, just given what you just mentioned about you know, all of the crosswinds and the headwinds out there. What's your take? Yeah, this is interesting. So let me throw some random facts at you. My favorite liner note of any album of all time is Pretty Hate Machine, Nine Inch Nails. Literally on the back, it says Nine Inch Nails is Trent Reznor, period. <laughs> so Quantum is Will Van Lowe. I mean, that that is Will's shop. Got a deep bench over there. A lot of smart people, but Quantum is uh, is Will Van Lowe. Number two, I don't know how Quantum does this, but generally speaking, the way we did it over at Kane, and I've heard from other private equity friends, you go out and you raise the next fund, and there's a meeting, there's dialogue of, hey, everybody in? You in? You in? Then you split up the pie, and you have your fights there about splitting up the pie, and sometimes you do that in the process of starting to raise the fund but if there's any consternation that you're not going to split the pie up and everybody's going to agree to it you don't start a fundraise and so the quantum was out fundraising so this is uh this is a this is a big development to happen in the middle of, of fundraise so there's there's definitely a bigger story there and you know i don't know d i've met him once or twice uh but just you know hoping that it it truly is a reevaluation of the family and not something something else. Is so. there in, in public world when on, on fundraises, is, is there typically a, a key man provision? So so usually the way key man's work in <clears throat> in private equity is it says something to the effect of this one person, these two, these three, these four people, usually in that number, if they are not devoting substantial or the necessary amount of time to run the fund, then it triggers a key man. So, I mean, clearly he's moving to senior advisor so that key man provisions are not tripped. And I don't know what their key man is. I've seen, I've seen other private equity firms literally have one person, this person, if they're gone, it, it trips. Uh, I've seen where two out of three leave the firm, it trips, there's something like that. But the key to the key man provision is it basically cuts the fund off from committing new money to companies. So you still manage the fund, but you go from fees being paid on commitments to fees being paid on the lower of invested dollars and or fair market value. So that that's the key to it. Yeah, one last comment. I mean, it's it is an interesting uh, anecdote in the middle of of really continuing sentiment within at least what I picked up in my private equity equity relationships is that there's still a lot of reticence on the part of LPs uh, to have fresh capital called for you know growth type initiatives in in their existing portfolios. So I had lunch with a. Uh, large PE fund CEO, portfolio company CEO last week. And it, it just reinforced that notion there. There's quite a bit of concern or uh, hesitation uh, relative to a broader broader uh, portfolio and, and what it means to be committing more inside of uh, 
hydrocarbon related investments. I mean, that's a really good point in that, you know, we talk about going to raise the new fund. It's really tough. The dollars are there. When you have a private equity fund, the documents say, we send you a letter, you send in the capital. That's the cash call that you just referenced. And the GP has 100% discretion on that. Now, the GP, if you don't send in your money, can penalize your capital account, can sue an LP to get the money. And generally speaking, there's this kind of like a marriage, if you will. The GP wants to raise the next fund, so doesn't want to piss off the limited partner. The limited partner, when times are the other way, you need to be in a GP and you want to make sure your money's taken, wants to make sure they don't uh, piss off the GP. But it's definitely shifted to a point where some GPs are scared to uh, to uh, call the money within the fund, even though they have the right to just because what happens if you get told no? Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's also ironic that now we're starting to see, at least in the rhetoric, uh, some reversal on the part of the big public managers who have been pretty vocal and adamant in terms of wanting to uh, disassociate from uh, fossil fuel investments. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Apollo is out about to raise their next fund. It's going to be $25 billion. I mean, whoever thought we'd see a $25 billion private equity? This is the big generalist uh, fund but they specifically said no energy because when they, their energy experience has been their 2013 vintage fund had 18% traditional energy, five out of the nine deals lost money and they underperformed the other buyout shops. And then when you look at their 2017 fund, they only had two energy deals in there and it actually outperformed the other folks. And so they're using it as a marketing tool of we won't do energy, give us money, which is Crazy. Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? Okay, I loved your <laughs> I loved your picture on that guy. I'm not sure where I found that, but uh anyway. yeah, yeah, who was that? <laughs> I don't know. I'll look it up. We'll uh, we'll post that on Digital Wildcat. Is that foreshadowing of of the hairline, or <laughs> maybe maybe so, maybe so? All right, Mark. Elbows were thrown uh, over the last few days at the EU Environment and Energy Ministers meeting in France. There was a proposal put up, uh, I believe, in December, where they were going to include a provision that said nuclear and natural gas are sustainable. And so it's kind of pitting France and their 70% nuclear power generation versus the Germans and the Austrians. What's going on there? Well, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's important in terms of, of the optics of how various members of the EU have set uh, emissions reductions targets. From a practical standpoint, you know, the crisis that Europe is in the midst of points out really just the the physics based reality overriding platitudes. You know, this is a lot of symbolism. It's important. Uh, it's important for the whole intra union uh, political dynamic. But at the same time, you have you know really just focusing on minutia of I think Netherlands said we agree with. 
gastronuclear is sustainable, but not the other. Uh, it's going to carry where they get a nuclear and gas designation of sustainable. Uh, there, there are, I think Germany, Luxembourg and the Netherlands are in the opposition. I don't know exactly what the number split is, but you know, there, there's a lot of unintended consequences in the middle of this too. Not the least of which I heard some uh, commentary last week. It's somewhat ironic as Germany decommissions nuclear, right? Right you're looking at importing power that's one uh, gas-fired or excuse me coal-fired generation from Poland and nuclear generated from from uh, from France and so you know it's just another of the um, kind of elevated uh, discord in the in the in the in the conversation that I don't think is is all that helpful yeah, and no, I mean, basically, Merkel had to make a deal with the anti-nuclear folks to retain power, you know, the function of a, or the, uh, in a parliamentary system, you know, deals are cut like that. And that's the decommissioning of the nuclear. And they're coming off years. They still have runtime left in them. And so to take those offline just doesn't make any sense to me, but... And something that caught my attention, uh, I know we talked a little bit about COP26 and there was a TED event in, in front of that a couple of weeks and Shell CEO Van Buren was in that, um, in that panel. I saw a comment, I think it was last week, where he said that at least on a, on a corporate basis, we believe we've got to go faster. And I would argue that, you know, one of the things that we're seeing here is a consequence of the really messy system realities, system level realities as we, as we uh, pursue this transition. And so uh, we're, we're going to have a lot of people who are directly impacted by things that result where there are gaps in kind of backfill for a solution. Yeah. And we spend a lot of time arguing about what to call it. Uh, I, I just think that, you know, that is that is unhelpful in the process. Yeah. And Will Franklin and I talked about this on the podcast I did last week that just totally missing in all this discussion has been the qualitative nature of power in terms of, hey, this is baseload. Hey, this is reliable. This isn't. I think you've had a because we've been kind of kicked to the curb on the energy discussion People have said things like, well, we'll just replace, you know, nuclear with solar and and wind and boom, look what happens. Guess what? When the wind doesn't blow, that's bad. Yeah, you, you've talked about it in a, in a slightly different context, but, you know, your, your um, partner over at Montrose Lane, at least from an advisory perspective, Mark Mills has talked a lot about the mining reality of, of green and renewables. And you've you've pointed out that there's still going to be a tremendous amount of diesel consumption by all the equipment that's needed to to do the mining part of the value yeah. chain. So, hey, we're in the Congo. Let's just go plug into the wall. <laughs> right. That doesn't seem to happen. Doesn't seem to happen. All righty. This is one of my favorite clips we uh, we did. So here, let's go back to the future. Guys aren't ready for that yet. Nobody. Calls me yellow. Jesus Christ, Doc, you disintegrated Einstein. Well, Chuck, there's a rumor around that was confirmed today, apparently with a release that I have not seen yet, that Chesapeake is in agreement to buy chief oil and gas for $2.6 billion. 
chief is order of magnitude, 600,000 acres in, um, in the Northwestern part of Pennsylvania production over a BCF a day looks very much like back to the future with the old Chesapeake model of acquiring large chunky gas positions, uh, in the late nineties and early two thousands. You remember the no fly zone around the Barnett and game over in the Haynesville. Uh, but first a little trivia uh, question or a quiz about, about chief. Where did, in what basin in 1994 did, uh, did chief get its start? Given the fact you're asking this question, I pretty much know this answer is going to be wrong, but I'll go ahead and say it. Uh, chief started in the, in the Barnett. Well, that's, that's what I would have guessed as well. Um, no, actually, it was in the Bend. What what they call in their historical timeline, they call it the Bend conglomerate. I remember talking about briefly for a brief period of time when I was an analyst about the Bend shale, and we used to say it didn't work because the Bend bent, but it didn't break. <laughs> so that's, so what's going on here? I mean, this is you know we titled this Back to the Future, and that's probably what gets us tripped up by copyrights or something and takes this episode down, but. You know, at the end of the day, this sounds like playbook Aubrey. It's, I'm going to buy a bunch of natural gas. Natural gas is going to go to 10 to 12 bucks. I'm going to buy the best. We're going to drill a whole lot. It really does sound like the good old days with Chesapeake. I saw they put out an investor presentation this morning, and I dug through it, and it took me all of 30 seconds. So I have no idea what to make of this deal. There, There's not a lot of details in terms of metrics locations, length of laterals, upsized stories. So maybe that'll come out, but it really feels like Aubrey back in the day, I'm going to buy it and you're going to like it, you know? Yeah. I mean, the, if there's a medium term redemption of nat natural gas as being more sustainable and more green, you know, I, I, I think it's just a fact of life that it, it is an important part of the bridge. So is this, you know, is this positioning um, really longer range ESG related in terms of going back to its roots as, as a uh, majority gas producer? And if you remember <clears throat> when Chesapeake first got into the Marcellus, I believe there was a pretty uh, high profile campaign against coal at the yeah. time and yeah. the clean virtues of natural gas versus the dirty aspects of coal. And I remember watching a lot of those public service announcements, if you will, in typical Aubrey fashion that we both love. Um, you know, is, is there, are there implications broadly for, for lack of a better term, the sustainability of, of, you know, a gas weighted ENPs, particularly uh, Chesapeake's uh, business model, having an advantage portfolio from uh you know, from a hydrocarbon standpoint, or hydrocarbon concentration standpoint. And what I hope it's not, and uh, I looked this morning for their proxy, but they haven't filed it yet since the, I think you got 45 days post the end of the year to file your proxy. What I hope it's not is we went through bankruptcy. We cleared, you know, cleared our balance sheet up and we management and the board of directors don't own much in the way of the stock. So let's just grow as big as we can so that we can build up the case for cash compensation. So I think, I think that's something we all need to dig in on this deal because 
when you get misalignment like that with uh, management and shareholders, it's it's something to worry about. Because say what you want about Aubrey. Aubrey believed, and he bought 10% of each offering he did. Absolutely. 5%. So, yeah. Absolutely. All right. The underappreciated story of the week. All right, Mark. Serbia revokes Rio Tinto lithium project licenses. What the heck is all that about? Yeah, you know, I picked this up uh, last Thursday. There was a story in Reuters that um, the prime minister, who is facing an election or re-election in the near future, I'm not certain on the timing, um, issued a cancellation of the project and the revocation of their exploration licenses or all the permits and licensing. And so <clears throat> the main theme here is a response to a pretty committed environmentalist and activist movement. The, the mine was called J-A-D-A-R, Yotter or Jotter. I'm not, not fluent. So uh, apologies if, right. if I mispronounced it. And so, um, that's the main theme of what's going on here. And I'd, I'd like to think about it as, you know, NIMBY comes to Serbia. Yeah. And I think it raises, you know, some certainly some questions for the U.S. John Arnold actually tweeted last week about the really the paradox of between fossil fuels. And now we need to be, you know, really consistent in thinking about domestic lithium mining the same way, you know, the offshoring decision versus lithium because all of that is a critical component of uh the green transition especially batteries when you brought the you texted this story to me last night and i was looking and i was going you know this is basically the serbian saying f you because of djokovic yeah. and the australian open you know take that you bastards blew me away reading the story that it really was environmental pressure within serbia I mean, I hate to sound, you know, xenophobic, but it's just who would have thought the Serbians would be swayed by environmental type issues? And it sounds like they are. I, I don't know the generational profile of that opposition group, but it, it does, you know, provoke thoughts about in Europe, especially just how powerful the whole, you know, Greta Thunberg activism and the, the, uh, the momentum and the the power that certainly was brought to bear in this, the political pressure that was brought to bear in this, in this case. I mean, this was a big deal for Rio Tinto. It would have made them, I believe, a top 10 producer in the world of, of lithium carbonate. Yeah. And so, I mean, even more imperative that we get the narrative back because if we're, if we're losing on that front, I mean, in Serbia, you know, yeah, it's not, and we know we've lost on the home field here in the United well, States. Well, and, and so. you know we can we could probably do a whole show on cobalt and, and nickel, but cobalt in particular, you know, a big chunk of the world's production is mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and so um, we we've got some certainly some e issues associated with just the mining process, but you start to get into S and G as well as you think about things like child labor and Right. Uh, work practices in terms of, uh, you know, uh, human safety. 
Exactly. So, so all right, Mark, this is Colin's favorite part of the show. <laughs> and you actually uh, came up with the recipient of this week's finger of the week. So let's do it. All right, Mark, the 180s. Who are the 180s, and why did you give them the finger of the week? Well, you gave them the finger of the week. I just came up with the the name of the of the recipient. Um, look, we've seen a lot of, of reality-based reversal of those who have been, you know, uh, speaking pretty uh, harshly about the oil and gas community uh, for the last, you know, three or four years. You know, I think Larry Fink sent out his first really pointed letter on ESG maybe three years ago. If you think about it, there was no reason for a public manager to be involved in energy stocks. That's been most mostly the case since 2014. We've, you know, been dwindled to irrelevance uh, at a low of 2% of the S&P, you know, around 3% now. And so you didn't have to be involved. Well, if you weren't involved in energy last year, in traditional energy last year, you left some money on the table. And certainly seeing what I think consensus is starting to believe is another really a repeat year for traditional energy, just given all the, the supply and de demand dynamics, um, you know, inflation and in, in, in so forth. It's even more fundamental than that because there, there's been a bit of a rising a uh, voice coming out of those who are most directly impacted by, you know, the problems that have been created by getting in a hurry and getting a little bit messy about transition. And so I, I, I think we've seen a reversal, thus the 180s in, in not only, you know, some pretty high profile public managers, but also in other areas. I think you had a story about, uh, about, Japan, I guess, you know, we can throw, we can throw the, what's going on with the EU designation of nuclear and, and gas in there as well. Yeah, no, the the story I read was, you know, what we're two months out from the COP twenty by the way, is it the COP twenty six or the COP? I don't know. I don't know either. We're uh, we're gonna have to get a uh, dictionary and a thesaurus around here at the uh, digital wildcatters office. But I think it's the COP twenty six, you know, two months ago, fossil fuels are evil, and now the Japanese government is subsidizing uh, gasoline sales, three cents a gallon, something like that. And it's just like, really guys, I mean, how do we demonize? And then two, two months later, we, we come back, you know, I've, the rumor I've heard, don't know if, if this is true, but you know, a lot of the money managers who shall remain nameless, although we had pictures, um, there's some talk that they talked up their energy transition books at the expense of hydrocarbons and maybe their actions were otherwise they were buying hydrocarbons last year. And now the talk up is we've got our book built, but Let, let's just say, let's, the let's just say the next few 13 F and 13 G reports are going to be pretty interesting to, to, <laughs> to analyze. Pretty interesting. Well, Mark, we've enjoyed having you around digital wildcatters the last couple of weeks. The, uh, coming on the podcast, sitting in for frack today. I think, uh, it's been thanks for having me. It's been fun.
Absolutely. All right, Digital Wildcatters, make sure you go on, subscribe to BDE. Join us every Tuesday, 10.30 a.m. Central. Uh, and check out Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. I drop every Wednesday morning. Tomorrow morning we'll be with Deanna Zhang as she talks about making her transition from Tudor Pickering Holt to E-Tech Monkey. E-Tech Monkey. E I know Deanna. She, yeah, she's sharp she cookie. She briefly joined my research team and was just an absolute rock star. Yeah, so, yeah, it's, a, it's actually really good. She's thoughtful, and she's had a front seat at the energy transition Uh and we go through literally technology and oil field service to never even mentioning carbon until call it 2018. So it's and a Forbes 30 under 30 and a Forbes 30 under 30. All right. Digital wildcatters. We'll see you next.